reading from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like any other people, cheaters, sinners, and adulterer. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not lift his eyes to heaven. As he prayed, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be, be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Will, and this morning we will be delving into the, uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which has just been read to us by Nikita. And so I want to draw on a couple of points this morning. And I think firstly, to understand Jesus's full meaning behind these verses, it is crucial to look to whom to Jesus is speaking to. So imagine a story being told with you as a character, with you as the main character. And within your, uh, your story, the character is shamed and dishonored. Consider the humiliation, the embarrassment, and the anger this would probably create within you. And this is exactly what Jesus does in this parable. He tells a story about a Pharisee to a group of likely Pharisees. We see from verse nine that the audience was those confident of their own righteousness, the self-righteous or the proud, the Pharisees. And this is so countercultural to a society where the Pharisees were probably considered the spiritual elite. And actually within the story, the, the character who's honored, the tax collector, was the one the society often shamed. And our instant assumption here when we read this parable is to think, I'm not that Pharisee. There's no way I could be. Can't be me. I'm probably the tax collector. But is this really the case? And there's a lot to be taken from the character of the tax collector. But that said, the primary audience here was, was not tax collectors. It was Pharisees. And knowing this audience is important as it identifies one of the powerful purposes and a problem being proposed. The problem of self-righteousness and pride. So what exactly is self-righteousness? Well, righteousness is the idea of us being right with God. And I searched for a concise biblical, but also secular definition of what exactly self-righteousness was. And I couldn't really find anything which hit home. So I've come up with my own amalgamation of a few. Self-righteousness is considering our own moral character greater than others and believing that it is this moral character that makes us deserving of the love of the Father. 
we see it in the Pharisee. He prays about himself. He thanks God for who he is and thanks God that he's better than other people. The Pharisee then goes on to list all of his good actions. It's all about him, how awesome he is. And in his prayer, at no point does he declare any of his failures or his potential flaws. The Pharisee believes that if he reminds God of his moral character, like God doesn't already know what his moral character is like, then it is this that will make him deserving of God's love. And do we ever on occasion pray prayers like that? And what exactly does God think about this self-righteousness? What does he think about self-righteousness in general? And the Bible has a lot to say on this matter. And we see in James chapter four that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And earlier in the Proverbs, in Proverbs 16, that everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And I almost avoided saying that verse just so I didn't have to say the word abomination, which I think I pronounced right this morning. And we see in this passage as well that God will humble those who exalt themselves. It's fair to say that God hates pride and he's not a fan of self-righteousness. But why? Why is it a problem? Why, why does it matter? Why does God care that if we are good people, we should rightly know we're good people and that we are worthy of moral character? Let me read a quote to you from Charles Spurgeon, a Mike Blaber favorite author to go to. The greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit, which makes men look to themselves for salvation. Let me say that again. The greatest enemy to human souls is a self-righteous spirit, which makes men look to themselves for salvation. Self-righteousness totally distorts the gospel message. It makes it about us, about me, about my actions and our actions and our deeds. Whether we tithe 10% or we fast twice a week, like that of the Pharisee. We begin to look within, internally, rather than outwardly. And the gospel is not about us. It's nothing to do with us. It's all about Jesus. Jesus dying on that cross and rising again to reveal the majestic love of God. And it's about the wonderful gifts of mercy and grace from God the Father. And it is in this and this alone that we are made righteous in nothing else. And pride destroys that core fundamental of the Christian faith. Timothy Keller says, if you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you work so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper. He may be your example. He may even be your inspiration, but he's not your savior. You are serving as your own savior. And I've heard this parable numerous times, and I've so often overlooked it, thinking, no, that's got nothing to do with me. I'm nothing like that Pharisee. Or, of course, I don't pray like that. And these two attitudes we see are not black and white, where on one camp we either fully declare our need for God, or alternatively, we fully praise ourselves. There's a spectrum between the two, where aspects of our heart could be Pharisee-like, or aspects of our heart may be tax collector-like. 
And I know that I am often pleased with my own moral performance. Did I not love that person really well at work today? Or I was great at giving my money so generously there. And I'm praying really well at the moment. Or maybe, maybe less that one. Um, or I'm a good Christian because I've started reg uh, regularly fasting. And because of all these things I've done, God loves me more and he thinks better of me. And I know I sometimes do think thoughts like that and elements of pride begin to creep into who I am and aspects of my life. And maybe you've never thought anything like that, but I am sure there probably will be areas where you are proud or you are self-righteous. And if you spend any time with me, I've adopted the saying about pride that as we draw into a closer relationship with the Father, pride is the only sin we'll be more likely to draw upon. As our perceived relationship with Jesus improves, we have more things to be self-righteous about. And it results in a heart of comparison, just like that of the Pharisee. And if we compare ourselves to those doing less than us or who we're doing better than, it leads to pride. And if we compare ourselves to those who are doing less than well, well than us, it leads to guilt and shame. And it's of no benefit and it's not of God. And we see the Pharisee privately compare himself to those below him. And I see it in my own life. I devalue others based on their job status, their relationship, the way they dress, the decisions on how they spend their money. And I instantly make comparisons to myself and think of them less. And I also can compare myself to those people who society would probably paint as better than me. And these, this just leads to insecurity and to shame. And social media is rife for this and so unhelpful. That picture on Instagram, which makes someone look, look so beautiful, so rich, so happy. And that just makes us think worse of ourselves. And that's not of Jesus. And that's not the way Jesus wants it to be. And this parable is just about the attitude of our hearts. And to whom do we give their glory? Do we give it to ourselves or do we give that glory to God? And I suppose the million dollar question of this morning is, how do we prevent self-righteousness or pride from creeping into our lives? How do we live lives full of humility, lives that recognize that the kingdom of God is about God and not about us? Blaise Pascal, a French mathematician, physicist and Catholic theologian from the 17th century, said the following. Knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness makes for pride. And knowing our own wretchedness without God makes for despair. But knowing Jesus Christ strikes the balance because he shows us both God and our own wretchedness. And I have four R's in our response to this, four R's on how to keep ourselves humble. Number one, we need to recognize. We need to recognize our shortcomings. Picture this this morning. Church Zoom is running as normal and everyone is signed in, everyone is watching and tuned into Oasis. But rather than watching me speaking to you now or Rod leading worship, we are watching a screen revealing all of your worst actions and all of your worst thoughts. It would be truly horrendous. And when we remember our shortcomings, it's very hard to be proud or self-righteous. 
about who we are. Now, I'm not saying we practice that regularly, and I certainly hope that never, ever, ever happens. However, constantly repenting of our sin and failures keeps us looking outwardly. It keeps us recognizing how in need of a savior we are, how much we need a loving and forgiving father. This is recognition, though, and this is certainly not dwelling. We should never, ever dwell on things like this, but rather we can give this away to Jesus, knowing he loves to welcomely take it. And the tax collector gives the perfect example, almost like it's intentional. I think it probably is intentional demonstration of this. He stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven and he beat his chest or his breast. And we see the same beating of the breast later in Luke 23 from those who were observing Jesus's crucifixion. It is a sign of extreme sorrow and it testifies to the reality of the emotion the tax collector was going through, contrary to that of the Pharisee. The emotion, as Pascal said, of recognizing his own wretchedness. And an emotional recognition of our sin is necessary. And the tax collector calls us out in himself when he describes himself as a sinner in verse 14. So we've recognized. Number two, we need to remember. We need to remember the wonder of who God and his amazing generosity. Just spend time marveling over who God is, reading his word, seeing this in his world. And I find it really helpful for myself to ponder his mercy and his grace. As the tax collector cries in verse 13, God, have mercy on me. And mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And grace is getting what we don't deserve. Just dwell on those for a second. Because of who God is, we don't get what we rightfully deserve. But rather, we get something good, which we don't deserve. And that is in the form of mercy. And that is in the form of grace. And it is these two things, in these two things, that true righteousness is found. As it says in Hebrews 12, verse 2, let us fix our eyes to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And when we see and acknowledge the goodness of who he is, then we'll need to stop looking within for our own goodness. Number three, reside. Reside in his presence, in silence, in solitude, and in prayer. Henry Nguyen, which I think is pronounced like that, notes that without solitude, it is almost impossible to live a spiritual life. Just hang out in God's presence. This is where the true transformation of our hearts happens. It's not on the Sunday preach, or definitely not this Sunday anyway. It's not in our watching of Christian documentaries, and it's not in our late night Netflix. It is in those moments, those seconds, those minutes, those hours, where we just spend time simply listening and dwelling. And this is where God changes the attitudes of our hearts, where he prunes all aspects of our character and ourselves that are proud or filled with comparison. And he just replaces them with his loving character. Mother Teresa said that she always began her prayer in silence. For it is in the silence of the heart that God speaks. And God is the friend of silence. And we need to listen to God 
because it's not what he, we say, but what he says to us and through us that really matters. For me, this has started with small steps where I try to allocate five minutes a day, which I actually time in total silence, not speaking, just listening to God. And often God says nothing, doesn't say anything. But I know in those moments, he is slowly and surely turning small, co uh, small cogs in who I am. Give time to silence, to solitude, and to prayer. And I'd really encourage you to make this daily. And within these moments, Jesus will fill us up. Number four, rebuke. I don't particularly like the connotations that come with the word rebuke, but I couldn't think of anything else which started with R and I wanted to have four. In our westernized church society, this word makes us uncomfortable and it's often filled and associated with so much negativity. Yet we see it scriptural and so commonly seen amongst the early disciples. We see it in Galatians 2 or Paul's rebuking of Peter. And I very nearly removed this whole aspect from my talk. But as I was praying about it, I really found it was important to share. We should welcome rebuke. I love what Charles Spurgeon has to say on this matter. We are one in Christ. Let us be friends with one another, but let's never be friends with one another's error. If I be wrong, rebuke me sternly. I can bear it and bear it cheerfully. And if ye be wrong, expect the like measure from me and neither peace nor parley with, our, with your mistakes. Now, I'm not suggesting that the next time we all gather together in person, that we should call each other's problems out, tell everyone what's wrong with them, tell them their errors and the mistakes, whether we even know them or not. No, that's not the way it's supposed to be, but rather in loving and in deep relationships. I regularly meet with three other guys on a weekly to every other week basis. And we have deep rooted relationships in one another, but also deep rooted relationships in Christ. And loving challenge is a regular recurrence when we get together. Do we enjoy it? No. Is it pain free? Absolutely not. But does it keep us grounded? Does it keep us humble? And does it keep us focused on Jesus? Absolutely. It leads to spiritual growth in God and relational growth with one another. And it's hard to do and it takes a lot of courage, but a recognition that it will allow that individual to grow more into the individual who Jesus called them to be is necessary. Rebuke with loving intent and in deep relationships keeps us from becoming self-righteous. And it is through all of these things that it leads to a humbling of our hearts. As I defined earlier, let us not consider our own moral character greater than others, nor believe that it is this moral character that makes us deserving of God's love. In this parable, Jesus reveals how we should approach his throne, to approach with totally the opposite of that, to approach with humble hearts, to approach like that of the tax collector, declaring our shortcomings, but ultimately declaring our overwhelming need of Jesus through recognizing our sin, remembering the wonder of God, spending time or residing in his presence and welcoming loving rebuke. Knees bent, 
heart bowed and heads presented in awe and respect. Like C.S. Lewis says, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Then and only then will we be raised up and exalted, exalted to a relationship with Jesus, exalted to a status as a son or daughter of God. Can I close to prayer or to pray? Thank you, Father, for the wonderful gifts of grace and mercy. God, that your amazing, your radical love for us doesn't change based on who we are and what we do, but it is just an ever-present thing. And God, I pray that through knowing that, it will lead to a growth in humility, a growth in a humbling of our hearts and recognizing that it's all about you, God. And I pray, Jesus, that this morning that you would just show us areas where we are self-righteous, where we are proud, where we put something else on your throne and serve you. And yet, God, just meet us in those moments now and just begin to transform us from within into hearts who are fully focused and fully orientated on you. Amen. Oh,